Uh, This morning we will be covering Matthew 20, verses 17 through 28. I will read through those verses in entirety, and after the reading of the word, offer you a time to pray silently, uh, an opportune time to um, repent of of unrepentant sins, uh, to ask God to uh, open your, your mind to the truth of the word, that you might Know him more, love him more, that your affections might be turned from dead things to the living God. I'll then pray for us corporately and then enter into the time of the word. Reading now from Matthew 20, verses 17 through 28. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised up on the third day. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. Jesus answered, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left hand is not mine to grant but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by the Father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Please take this time to pray. Heavenly Father, as the church gathers on the Lord's Day, we come to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Redeemer, our Savior, the second person of the Trinity, the author and perfecter of our faith. Lord, we do, throw, we do these through elements of, of prayer and, and rejoicing through song, 
and fellowship, and now the ministry of the word. Lord, I pray for the faithful here today, those who are born again, sealed and indwelled by the Holy Spirit, that your holy and true word, God, that through the Spirit you would illuminate their minds. Lord, show us in our hearts, in our inner working of our being, where we have made idols of other things, where we have been self-centered, materialistic, and our thoughts have been earthbound. Lord, remind us anew, confront us, God, through the gospel of Jesus Christ, that the perfect one came as a ransom for his people. And he calls us to emulate him. He calls us to be transformed more and more into his likeness by the inner working of the Spirit as he prepares a people for glory for the glory of the Father. God, so lead us this day through your word to continue to transform us and mold us as our affections turn from worldly things, we pray that our eyes would be focused on Christ. Lord, we pray for those amongst us who are outside of the faith, Lord, we pray that this is the day that that you have designed and assigned for them to be drawn to faith through the preaching of the word and through the power of the drawing of the Holy Spirit, that they would turn from dead works to faith in Christ, to the glory of the Father. We pray now as we continue that your name would be glorified. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Continuing now in Matthew is the progression of of Jesus is is continuing in this final time that he will come to Jerusalem. And in this final approach, he's preparing his disciples. And as we began all the way back in chapter one, when Mary was was told that she would bear a child who would save his people from their sins that, that continual reminder has been before his people, whether in the early moments of, of his ministry, where the crowds were following him and not many were listening and not many were following him out of faithfulness, but out of almost um, voyeurism. Look at this new teacher. Look at all of the people who are gathered around him. And then, <coughs> excuse me, we saw as it continued a division between those who were called by him and those who were believing in him, his disciples. And we had the crowds, which were the larger group of people that were were just there to see this event of this, this famous new teacher. And then you had his adversaries, which predominantly made up the religious class in Israel. And that has continued through through the entirety of his ministry. And now as as he is going towards Jerusalem to that faded place where he will confront those leaders in the temple and show them how they have forgotten how to worship God. 
And while they're teaching people how to worship God, he will confront them with their idolatry. They'll want to kill him. They'll plan to kill him in secret. They'll attempt to get him in public. They'll be unable. He'll confound them. And as I've done throughout, they'll try to trap him um, with finding him teaching something unscriptural. And yet he continues through this. The author of life. The one who created them. The long-awaited Messiah who was promised long ago. And so as he continues towards this, this cup of wrath that he must drink. God's wrath on the curse. As he continues forward, he continually needs to remind those closest to him, those specially chosen who will lead his bride, the church, after he goes back to the Father and they send the Spirit. He's still teaching them and they're still in need of instruction. If you have any doubt of that, be reminded of, of the parable that we just went through last week had to do with an inappropriate understanding of right compensation. And that the reward that the faithful received was Christ himself. And so now he's going to remind them. The last time he reminded them of what waited for him in Jerusalem was in chapter 16. And it was very brief. Here he gives quite the point for point introduction of exactly where he's going. Exactly what's going to happen to them. And it's tied directly to this, this interaction that comes afterwards. In 17, as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside. And on the way, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes. And they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. So he takes the, the twelve aside as they're going, and he and he kind of you imagine he can see it on a hill. There's Jerusalem. The wonderful city, the city on a hill, the temple of God resides there. The people worship there, they go to meet God there. And here they have confessed in chapter 16. That he's Messiah. He's, he's the son of God. He's the long awaited for one. They know who he is. He tells them this knowledge is given to you by God. Not of your own. And he points to Jerusalem. This high place of worship. And he says. When I go there. The son of man. God himself will go to Jerusalem. For the following reasons. He will be betrayed. That's what that word means to be handed over. He will be betrayed. Now we know Judas is right there, one of the 12. This is what's going to happen to me. I will be betrayed. Handed over and I will be mocked. I'll be condemned. Handed over to the Gentiles, meaning 
that as we'll see this play out, the, the gospel, the, the leading towards his, his crucifixion, leads first by being betrayed by his own. And then being handed over to Gentiles or pagans who have not the scriptures, who have not the, the patriarchs, who have none of the history, to pagans, to the Romans. He'll be given to them. And then those, those pagans will flog him or whip him, as we know, mock him. We, we could go on and on for the, what happens up in the passion. He's, he's spit on, he's mocked, he's, he's robbed, all of these things, abused, beaten. He's telling his disciples, this is what's going to happen. Betrayal, handed over to the Romans, beaten, ridiculed, crucified. This is the cup. This is what awaits him. And all those following him had just been told about compensation in a parable. They'd also seen the interaction with the rich young ruler and what it meant to go to the kingdom. And prior to that, he'd been speaking on the question of what do I need to obtain eternal life? All the 12 watching, listening. This is the centrality of understanding the suffering servant in Isaiah 53. This is tied to the end of this, this when somehow Christ came to serve and to be a ransom for many. He's letting his disciples, his apost- the ones who had become the apostles, know this is what you have in store for you if you're going to follow me. He didn't say in this section, I'm about to go in Jerusalem, sit on the throne, and everyone's going to go, the king has arrived, and then we're going to kick all the Romans out, and it's going to be beautiful, and then I just think we'll just take over the world. To many huzzahs, to many celebrations. No. I go into the city that should be awaiting my presence more than any city in all of God's creation. And when they come face to face with my holiness, their only desire will be to kill me. Because the darkness hates the light. And yet, when his apostles who've been with him, his disciples who've been with him, the next thing that comes up then in in verse 20 the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him before the, before, with her sons and kneeling before him, she asked for something. It looks good so far. She's coming to Jesus. She's showing that she understands his position, believes that he is who he says he is. And so she kneels before him and says, well, and, and Jesus says, what do you want? Here's one thing I want to make clear. If you've, ha- if you've heard some people preach or teach this they'll take this what do you want and they'll try to make it because it's a it, the, the what's coming next is like a another one of those moments like really but he's not saying it to her like what do you want which i had the unfortunate while researching this week of watching a couple of those do you see the way jesus said it what do you want well that's that's not what he said this is 
This is two words in the Greek. It's just, what's your desire? What do you want? What is it that you're asking of me? Uh, you, could, you could phrase it in certain different ways. There's nothing in the, the mother of the sons of Zebedee that shows anything other than reverence towards Jesus in the way that it's written. He's simply in English, for two Greek words, we wrote, what do you want? In the ESV and others have a different way. But there's nothing um, inherent in the way that Jesus is talking to her that would seem disrespectful or dismissive. He's literally asking her, what is it that you want to ask of me? And then, so the mother of the sons of Zebedee, if you look deep enough, or, or I shouldn't say it that way, there's, there's discussion and always has been of who this woman is. She could be Salome. Um, she could be actually, which would make her the, the aunt or the aunt of Jesus, depending on where you live in the United States or the world. An aunt or an aunt, A-U-N-T. I'm just saying. It's pretty clear. And which would make John and James the cousins of Jesus. And, and we, there, there's no way to, to point that down specifically other than we know that John and James were, were high up there in terms of the, if there was a hierarchy within the apostles, they're mentioned up there along with Peter quite often. But so she, she comes before Jesus and is taking a posture of reverence. And so Jesus asks, she says she wants something. And he asks, you know, what is it that you desire? Keep in mind, he's, he's, just, he's just gone through this teaching on the laborers in the vineyard. And he's just now told them what awaits him in Jerusalem. And the way that Mark writes this, it, it seems to imply that it was the sons who actually put the mother up to the question, which makes it even worse. It's like well, you, your mom, you brought your mom She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. Now, if there's anything you want to say about whatever her name is, if it's Salome or someone else, you have to admit she's bold. And one, one, um, one of the, the early church scholars pointed out, like, Although there's error, clear error in her understanding of the kingdom, particularly of what all the teaching came off, you have to say, at least it seems to be coming from a faithful heart. What that means is she actually believes Jesus is going to reign. And so she actually believes that Jesus is who he says he is. Her misunderstanding still, just like everyone else, is what his kingdom is actually going to look like, which will play into the rest of the conversation that he has with his disciples. His kingdom isn't going to operate like any other kingdom that's ever existed. Any other kingdom of man that's ever existed, the way it works is not going to be the same. The places of honor and making sure that there's a, a proper hierarchy in God's kingdom is not what Jesus has been communicating. But she wants to ensure when, when you get there, and if it really is this interaction of them putting their mother up to it, you have to, I guess, imagine the scene at least without speculating too far. There's the other 10 going, oh, what's Salome doing? If that's who it is. What's she doing? What's, what's happening? Oh, and James and John are over on the side just kind of like, fellas. 
Make sure that my son have the two highest places of honor and position in this kingdom that you're going to reign over. Now, in her understanding, <clears throat> excuse me, of that kingdom, more than likely she's still thinking of it as, while believing that Jesus who he says he is, and not understanding perhaps the totality of what it would look like, that it operated very much like the, the ancient kingdoms of Israel. You had David as king, and you had Joab and his brothers who were kind of military leaders, and then kind of things went down from there. And there was a common practice that here's one on the right, here's on the left. One kind of signified uh, a military leader within the kingdom, and the other kind of signified an a, uh, intellectual or, or religious leader in a kingdom. And so you had this kind of, and then everyone else, all the other leaders or those that were a part of the cabinet were below them. And so <clears throat> she comes with this request, a request of great misunderstanding, but also one showing a faithfulness and at least belief that what Christ was, he, she believed who he said he was, that Jesus answered. You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup I'm able to drink? And then they said to him, the brothers, we are able. So, the mother asked the question. She's bowing down and requesting. The sons are there with her, and so are the other ten as well, disciples. She asked the question. Jesus doesn't answer her. He answers the brothers and says, you don't know what you're asking. I mean, you're, you're, you said your mother requested the wrong thing. Because what he's telling them is like, I'm not going in to sit on a throne and have a feast and drink of the bounties of, of the, the best wine. I'm going to receive a cup of wrath. I'm going to receive a banquet of ridicule, betrayal, mocking. I'm about to receive full payment for the one and only one who is holy and followed the law to completion and is about his father's will and was calling the light to push away the dark. The cup he will go in to receive will be one of wrath. And so when she's talking about, make sure they're here in your kingdom, he's like, oh, you missed some space between. See, the space between is what's important. The misunderstanding that Jesus was coming in his first advent to just go get on the throne and overthrow the kingdoms and Israel and all that, that was the big misunderstanding. In his first advent, he's coming to receive wrath. He's coming as, he says at the end of this exchange, to be right recompense for his people. Meaning he's going to purchase something by his own blood, by his own broken body. 
the disciples, it seems, and especially perhaps this mother, that that part's kind of important as it pertains to how one looks to being a part of this kingdom. He wrote, he continues, are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And they said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup. But to sit at my right hand and my left is not mine to grant, but is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. Meaning, even this question, there's, there's apparent, apparent times in when Christ is talking about time of things and position of things. We'll see this later on um, when he'll talk about not even he knows the time of his return. Speaking to the humanity of the incarnation. Uh, the Father will reveal that in the, in the nature of, of, of the eschatological finality. And in the same manner, these two positions you're asking for, it's not for me to give, it's for the Father. The Father has those places appointed, and yet you'll notice he doesn't use any kind of language to speak about how those positions will rule or reign or anything like that. But also notice the beginning part. You will drink my cup. And what's interesting when we, when we start with the book of Acts and you see the Holy Spirit finally, the helper, the comforter comes and indwells the church and you see these men who are told over and over again the cup that they must drink and what Jesus will do and what will happen to him. And when he's actually arrested, which he's told them over and over again, when he's actually betrayed, after, you know, a, a brief skirmish, they all flee. And the leader will lie three times out of fear that he's not associated with Jesus. And these same group of, of peop- men who were terrified will become emboldened. And they'll be sharing the testimony of this one who took the cup of wrath. And all of a sudden, they'll, in the face of these same religious authorities, be taken and beaten and counted as a privilege that someone would beat them for the sake of Christ. He's letting them know those who follow in my name don't expect glory in this kingdom, don't expect elevation. Don't expect expect all the good things in life. Rather, what you should be expecting is the same thing that Jesus experienced when he called light in the midst of darkness. Adversary. You should not be surprised if you make a stand as a Christian in the workplace, in your family, in your neighborhood, that it's met with disdain. Matter of fact, that's exactly what we're supposed to expect. And it's what the apostles would come to celebrate throughout the account of the book of Acts. It's what they would point out to the churches they were writing letters to. Counted as all joy. Under many trials. And here's the juicy part. 
And then 24, and when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That last part is a a direct allusion to uh, Isaiah 53, 11, when he's called the many. But as they are getting indignant in 24, Jesus calls them together and points to them the misunderstanding of his kingdom and their kingdom. It's not just how it will operate politically or or in type of hierarchical means or any type of function that they're used to. It won't look like that at all. There'll be one Lord, one king. As we talked about last week, the actual inheritance of Christ himself, the actual inheritance of citizenship in this kingdom is the reward. And the idea of focusing on what am I going to receive for my time with you, whether it's the apostles or whether it's now, is a wrong view of rewards. The reward is Christ. Why do you serve in the church? Do you serve that other people might look at you and go, Look how good they serve. Are you doing it because you want honor amongst men? Why do you give to the church? Do you do it because you believe somehow you're going to be given extra recompense in material gains for giving money? I had that conversation with a family member at a funeral. Gave for the first time at church. And then this happened at my job. That's everywhere. You don't give to the church. Give of God's work. So that you might receive extra money back from God. Oh, there he is. God gave him some. Let's put it in here. Bling, bling, bling. Yeah. Every time. That's, that's abhorrent. It's supposed to be sacrificial. I'm giving not because I'm going to get anything back. I'm giving for the work of the church. I'm giving of myself to others for the glory of God. The idea of this positions and rewards and all of these things is a misunderstanding of what we're doing. It's supposed to be a vast overflow of love of God. So much so that the recognition of, I'm really good at this, and some people need help with this, so I'm going to just do it as much as I can. Not because I want them to look at me and say, look how awesome they are, look at all the stuff they're doing, how amazing are they. No, it's because I want God to be glorified in my serving others. Because my serving others lifts them up. And that brings glory to God amongst the house of the faithful. I'm giving to the church for the works of ministry, because my overflow 
of love for what God has done for me drives me in such a way to do so. Everything you do in this life for others, for the kingdom, is supposed to be within that understanding or that framework. God has given all. He's the ransom for me. He's the one who deserved all the glory and all the honor. He deserved to come the first time, walk right to the throne and have everyone bow down. But he didn't because there was a problem that needed fixing us. And so he came here as a ransom for his people. And he set the example here in this kingdom until my kingdom comes. This is who my people should be. They should be a people that I've called to myself who desire to serve one another. Desire to use their natural and spiritual gifts to lift each other up. To confront each other when necessary. To lift each other up. And point each other to Christ. And no matter what the circumstance is in life. Out of an overflow. Because me. A sinner. A rebel. By nature and by choice. Out of his good pleasure. Called me to himself. Purchased me by the blood of Christ. The curse that was rightly mine. The the punishment of that curse is death and damnation and judgment of God. He took it on my behalf. My response has to be one of overwhelming love. Of a love that until you... Meet him again in glory, in fullness. Can't possibly comprehend the fullness of the adoration due him. So when Jesus is is talking to his disciples, and this isn't what my kingdom is going to look like, this is what you have to be, and he uses two words to basically describe what it is to be a slave. And what that meant was in these ancient times, what was one way to look at someone and go, they're doing it all right. How many slaves they had? How much riches they had? How much property they had? They must be doing it all right. And I have to tell you, it doesn't seem like people's minds have changed that much. We don't have actual slaves anymore, but we sure love people with possessions. Oh, no one's nodding anymore. The problem still remains for us. Look what they're doing. Why are, why are celebrities so popular? Musicians, artists. So many things. Let's watch their lives. Let's see what they do. Their lives are train wrecks. They all have the same life. Yeah, this thing happened and this, and now I'm a drug addict and an alcoholic and I've had five marriages and I don't... (laughs) What are we celebrating? Materialism. Voyeurism of other people's lives. Look at how that life, I wish I had that life. No, you don't. You have full life. Because your life isn't here and now. It's, 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 It's awaiting for you. 
And the one we're, we're reading about now, who gave himself as a ransom for us, did so that you might receive his full inheritance in his kingdom. We're not worried about who's on the right or the left. We're in. And if that's truth, examine your hearts. Examine and really go through, what do I think about? What do I want in life? What are the things that are the most important to me? And then if you're really brave, write them down. And then you're going to look at a list and go, these are the things that need to die in me. I haven't given this up to Christ. I'm not thinking about Christ in this moment. Where is he in all my life? Where is he in my thoughts? Because my who's who's of what I want out of life sure doesn't look that different from my unbelieving neighbor across the street. I pray and hope as we look to this account. If you want to be great in my kingdom, serve one another. If you want to be great in my kingdom, be as a slave. Want to be first? Be last. Because then we're following Christ. As 28 was written, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Heavenly Father, I pray the church, not just our local assembly, but the church universal, will be broken of its materialism, would be shown the ways in which we have abandoned this first principle of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Those who are called by his name are to imitate him. Lord, move us to serve each other and those around us. Let us not seek position or prominence, but rather be as a slave our brother and sister give us hearts of Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit mold us more and more into his image we pray this in Christ's name amen please stand the Lord bless you and keep you Lord, make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Amen.